Uh, very quickly, um, we're going to be looking at a section of Scripture this morning, Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, or if you have a phone, you can scroll there. If not, it'll be up on the screen. I'll read it in a minute. Uh, but before we jump into Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, let me, let me ask you this question. Um, do you think that first lessons are important? So when I'm, what I mean by that, first lessons, is, you know, maybe the first safety lesson that you teach your child is what? Somebody yell it out. Yeah, don't play with fire, don't touch the hot stove, don't stick your finger in an electrical socket, right? There's all sorts of kind of first lessons you teach your kids. Um, I coached soccer for a long time, and most of the people that I've ever coached could tell you that the one thing, the most important thing, the first thing I'm going to teach them is how to speed dribble with the soccer ball. Toe down, knee over the ball, shoelaces every time you take a step. Like most of the kids I've coached could tell you that verbatim, 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 verbatim. If you've ever been rafting before, what's the first thing they teach you in rafting that's the first safety lesson? Again, shout it out. Yeah, somebody said don't drink tea. Is that what you said? Oh, the tea grip. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, hold under the tea grip. Don't let go of it. Because if you let go of it and hits a rock, it could pop out and hit somebody in the mouth, right? Yeah, there's all these first lessons. They're important, right? So Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13 is Jesus' first lesson to the disciples, right? At least as it's recorded in Luke chapter 5. So this is Jesus' first lesson um, to the disciples. The reason we know that is because in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, if you have a Bible or if you have an app, you can scroll there, we see that um, verses 1 through 11 are the calling of the first disciples. And so Jesus has called um, these men from their jobs as fishermen and tax collectors and various things. And he said, I want you to come and follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. We're going to go out there, and we're going to change the world. And so as they're leaving from this place, they have this encounter, which I believe is absolutely intentional because it has very, something very, very important uh, for Jesus to teach these men and to teach us today as well. I'm going to read very quickly. Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, um, just pray that you would be here with us this morning. I pray, Father, that uh, you would send your spirit. And Father, I pray that uh, we wouldn't be able to leave here today. We wouldn't be able to leave this place today without having had an encounter with you, the living God. Father, we pray these things now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So how many of you guys have ever been really, really dirty before? Like really dirty, right? You Maybe you went to the slip and slide last weekend and uh, you got, you know, really muddy out there. Uh, maybe some of you had jobs where you got filthy. Um, I spent my childhood in a place called Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, which is exactly the way it sounds. It is, it is, if you could picture in your mind what Traveler's Rest, South Carolina would be, small town in South Carolina, that's where I grew up. And so part of growing up in South Carolina meant getting dirty a lot. And, uh, and you know, in fact, it's funny, one of my good buddies, a guy named Carter Cook, who lived in the city of Greenville, kind of the big city, would come out to my house every now and then, and uh, we would have fun doing all the stuff that gets you dirty in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. So we'd play in the creek, you know, for the morning. We'd get out there and we'd dig around in the creek, make dams, you know, get covered with sort of dirt and sand and all sorts of stuff. 
And then after we did that for a little while, we'd go up into my yard, and we had acreage, and uh, we had apple trees. And one of the things we would do is we'd play apple baseball. And if you guys have ever played apple baseball, if you haven't, give it a try. It's pretty awesome. But it's where you pitch an apple to somebody, and then you hit it, and everybody gets covered with applesauce. It's awesome, right? We had scuppernon vines, and uh, what would happen is the scuppernon vines, eventually the scuppernons, which are these little grape-like things, would get rotten. And they were great for having battles with, and so you'd have scuppernon fights. You'd throw them at each other, and they'd splat. Awesome. And so, you know, Carter had come out to my house one day, and we'd done all this stuff, and we'd gotten relatively dirty, because there just isn't that much other stuff to do in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina. And uh, probably, you know, I don't know, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, we started to get a little bored. We had done all the typical things. And so we went into the shed at my house uh, out in the backyard, and we were digging around in this sort of shed barn-like thing. And as we were looking in there, we found an old big wheel. Now, I don't know if you know what a big wheel is, but it's a plastic sort of motorcycle with a big wheel on the front. It's probably intended for ages of people who are like, I don't know, four to eight or something. And we were about 12 at the time. But we looked in there, we saw the big wheel, and we thought, you know what, we could probably use that to have fun. So we dragged out the big wheel. And uh, we took it up to the top of this hill in my backyard. It's about probably 40 yards long. And uh, we got on this big wheel, and we would ride it down the hill and, uh, you know, sort of get to the bottom of the hill. It was really kind of fun. And we thought, you know what, it could probably be more fun, however. And so we went back in the shed. We found some wood, some plywood, and we built a ramp at the foot of the hill. And so here we are, 12-year-old boys riding this vehicle intended for four-year-olds. Down the hill, hit the ramp, flying in the air, we'd crash. It was awesome, right? And we looked, and we thought, you know, we could probably actually have even more fun if we made a giant mud puddle at the base of the ramp. And so we got the hose, and we sort of made this big mud puddle, and it turned, you know, sort of this dark brown. And we rode down the hill, you know, or hit the ramp, flew into the air, and landed in this mud puddle over and over and over again. My mom has a picture, or had for a long time, a picture on her refrigerator of the two of us, and we were just covered with mud, so much so you can kind of just see the whites of our eyes and our teeth. Well, a little while later after doing this, um, my mom stuck her head out the back door, and she whistled, and she said, all right, guys, time to come inside for dinner. And so Carter and I left the, you know, big wheel there and left the ramp there, and, and we trotted over to the back door. And I remember putting my hand sort of on the back door and getting ready to go inside the house. And Mom was like, whoa, hold on. You can't come in the house like that. She was like, you guys go over to the well, and I'm going to wash you off, and then you guys can come inside. By the way, I grew up in the country. Did I mention that? We had well water, okay? So I remember standing there next to the well with Carter, my buddy, and my mom walks over and turns on the well water and begins spraying off the mud with this well water. Now, quick question. Does anybody know the temperature of well water? It's like 33 degrees. I, 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 it's like one degree above freezing. I don't know if that's true exactly, but it's cold. But I remember shrieking and screaming as my mom washed all this mud off of the two of us, and she had a big smile on her face. After cleaning us off, we ran to the back door, ran upstairs, took hot showers, came downstairs, and had dinner. Now, the point of the illustration is this. We were, we were filthy. Like, we were filthy, you know, my tidy whities at the time were just, I remember they were stained brown from that mud adventure. That is my story. I'm sticking to it, by the way. Anyway, so anyway, but I remember vividly just being filthy, getting ready to run to the back door, but not really realizing that I was as dirty as I actually was. Does that make sense? Until my mom said, oh, by the way, we're going to have to wash you off before you come in. And part of what I remember about that too is the fact that she was more than willing and able to clean us off. Here is a story. Jesus has called these 12 disciples, right? He said, I want you to come and follow me. They're leaving and they run into this man who is unclean, right? In fact, we're going to jump in really quickly here because I think there really are four things that Jesus needs the disciples to see, not just about this man, but about themselves. And the first is this, 
is that Jesus needed the disciples to realize that they were unclean. Let me sort of say it another way. Jesus needed the disciples to realize that just as physically unclean as that man was, they were just that spiritually unclean. Let me read um, this first section of verse 12. It says this. While, in Jesus, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Let me read it one more time. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. So some of you know this, some of you don't. But leprosy is this disease. It can be uh, have internal manifestations as well as external manifestations. It's basically where your nerve endings, these pustules form internally or externally. They burst, they kill nerve endings. And so when you think about lepers, what you think about is people who are maybe missing their fingers or missing their nose or missing various body parts. It's because the nerves get destroyed, the flesh gets destroyed. It's actually a, a pretty gross and pretty horrific disease that was incredibly rampant uh, back in Jesus' time. Now we have medicines that cure most of this and most of the world, but it says that this man had leprosy. And what does it say? Does it say that he had a little bit of leprosy, a little bit on his elbow, and he would take some calamine lotion and put it on there, or his mom would take some spray that would make it feel better? No, it says he was covered with leprosy. He was covered with leprosy, right? And not only that, but again, for those of you who do not know, do, do or do not know, the life of a leper uh, was just was not an easy life, right? And so they had to live outside of the city gates. They had to live in leper colonies. They weren't allowed to be with all the normal people, all the clean people. They had to live out there together. And when they did come into the town for any number of different reasons, if they saw somebody else coming their direction, they had to yell, unclean, unclean, unclean. I mean, this guy was so aware of his uncleanliness. Not only that, but they weren't allowed to go into the temple. They weren't allowed to go into the synagogue, and so they couldn't come into the presence of God. Their, life were just, their lives were miserable. And this guy, who was covered with leprosy, probably had had it for quite some time now, he was acutely aware of his brokenness. He was acutely aware of his uncleanliness, unclean, unclean, unclean. And I think what Jesus is doing in this situation is he's showing us, he's showing the disciples that as physically unclean as this man is, you need to understand that you're just as spiritually unclean. There's a man named Malcolm Muggeridge who, um, in the early part of the 20th century, was a newspaper man. He was a writer. He was really a Christian spokesperson, and so people looked to this guy uh, to get his opinions on Christianity and Christian thought, and uh, everybody loved him. And uh, he had been married, you know, 50-plus years. His wife passed away, and everybody, you know, sort of looked at him as this great hero, and after his wife passed away, he wrote a book, and in that book he made all sorts of you know, really brave and vulnerable statements. One of the things he talked about in the book is he said, my whole life I had been tempted to be unfaithful to my wife. He said it was just sort of always this itch, this always sort of this, this, this thing inside me that I had this desire, and you know, I, I hated it, but at the same time it wouldn't really go away. And uh, he tells in the story, he said, once I was in India on a story, I was writing a story for the paper, and he said, I've been there for, you know, about a week, and he said, in the mornings, I would go down to bathe this river. And uh, as this river sort of flowed by, he said, we were down there one morning, I was down there by myself one morning, and it was one of those mornings where the water temperature was cool, the air was warm, and there was sort of this mist coming off the river, I was bathing, and he said, I looked upstream, and I saw a woman also bathing with her back to me. And he said, all of a sudden, that itch began to sort of, you know, become insatiable within me. And he said, I, I sort of stood there, and I looked upstream at her, and I thought, you know what? I could, I could probably do it. I could be unfaithful to my wife, and nobody would ever know, right? I'm, a, I'm half a world away. Nobody would ever find out. 
And so he said he started to make his way upstream, and he stopped about halfway, and he's like, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. What am I, what am I thinking? But then again, he was wrestling, and he said, again, this is my chance. And so he said he went up, and he made his way closer and closer to the woman, and he reached out his hand, and he said, as he got ready to put his hand on her shoulder, he said she turned around, and he jumped back in horror because the woman was a leper. And instead of having a nose like you or I have, she simply had two sort of holes where her nose should have been. And instead of having a regular ear like you and I have, there was sort of a piece of skin. Instead of having fingers on her hands, she had nubs. But what he said truly shocked him wasn't her physical uncleanliness, but was his spiritual uncleanliness. Like all of a sudden in that moment, he realized just how depraved, just how broken, just how sinful he really was. Does that make sense? This is this Christian thinker, this guy that everybody looked to to hear what he had to say about Christianity. He's writing this in these memoirs after his wife has passed away for the purpose of communicating to all these regular people, you're far more sinful than you realize. You're more broken than you realize. And I think that's absolutely what Jesus is doing here. I think Jesus, Jesus is using this situation with this leper to communicate to these men who are following him, who, by the way, are Jews, right? They obey the law, right? They're professionals at being good, right? They, they have good theology. They've got all this stuff going for them. But for some reason, Jesus needs to communicate to them that you are just as spiritually unclean as this man is physically unclean. And I think we need to hear the same message today. I mean, again, it's Jesus' first lesson, right? And so here's what I, where I think this goes. There are many people in the room this morning who think, yeah, I'm, you know, I know exactly where I'm spiritually unclean, right? The stuff that I struggle with is, is huge. It's big. It's, you know, it, it sort of is very, very clear. It's very, very overt, right? And you can kind of fill in the list of what you think those sins are. And so for you, you're like, hey, I know. I, I recognize that I'm unclean. I think it's possible that the people who need to hear this this morning are the church people, right? They're the good people, right? They're the people who look like they've got it all together, you know, I've been going to counseling now for about the year, past year and a half, and so it's kind of cute. I go down to Atlanta a couple of times a month, and my kids will say, Dad, where have you been, or where'd you go? And I was like, I go down to Atlanta to see my counselor. And, uh, and I'll explain to him, I'll say, this is, he's really like a life coach for me, because part of what he's good at is helping me understand the brokenness in my heart. In fact, the theme for the last year and a half for me has been uh, for me to look at the log in my own eye, and not the specks in anybody else's eyes. Does that make sense? Because part of what he's getting at, and I think is completely appropriate, not only my counselor, but Jesus here, is he's demonstrating and showing that we're far more broken, far more sinful than we realize. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. When we think about sin, we think about sin as sort of breaking the rules. That's typically what we think about when we think about sin. But the truth is that what sin really is, is as Augustine said, it's really disordered loves. It's really when you, you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing. It's when your loves are out of order. It's when you love something else more than God, right? If you love your family more than God, right? If you love people, other people, more than your family. And so ultimately, it's this picture of disordered loves. Another way of looking at sin, looking at sin fundamentally starts with the way we perceive God. How do you view him? Uh, the book we're going to be doing, Understanding Who You Are by Larry Crabb, in a, about a, well, a few days with a group of people, one of the things Larry Crabb, who's a Christian counselor, says, he says, our default position as humans is we look at God and we don't believe that he's good. And because we don't believe that he's good, we spend our entire lives either trying to avoid him or to, uh, to appease him, to bribe him. And so the truth is, every single person in this room, the wild people, the good people, our sinful sort of default mode toward God is looking at him and not really believing that he's good 
and then basically trying to order our lives in such a way so that we either avoid him, right, or that we get his blessing and we appease him. The truth is what Jesus wants to communicate to us, I think, and to the disciples is that you are more broken and more sinful than you can possibly imagine. That's the first point. We must realize that we're unclean. The second thing I think Jesus needs us to see in the story is it's not just enough to recognize we're unclean. We must be willing to be made clean. Listen to verses 12a and b, the whole verse here. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, right? So again, just think about this for a second. Here's this guy. He's covered with leprosy. Because he's covered with leprosy, you can assume he's had it for a long time, right? 10 years, 12 years, 15 years, however long. He's desperate. So desperate, in fact, that when he sees Jesus, he does what? It says he falls with his face to the ground, right? Falls with his face to the ground. He is, he's desperate. And not only does he fall with his face to the ground in front of Jesus, but it says he begs him. He begs him. He pleads with him. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. This man is nothing if he's not desperate, right? And it says that he does this where? In a back alley somewhere, out in some field, or in the pastor's office? No, it says that while Jesus was in one of the towns, in other words, it's in the middle of all of these people, it's in the midst of all this, uh, this crowd, and he basically is so desperate to be made clean that he doesn't care. He falls flat on his face before Jesus and begins begging him because he's desperate to be made clean, right? When I was uh, in St. Louis in seminary, um, I had a couple different jobs during school, but one of the jobs I had was running an after-school care program from 3 to 6 in the afternoon at Twin Oaks uh, Christian School. And so I would take care of these kiddos um, when uh, their parents were at work and they'd come pick them up. And so inevitably what would happen is I'd meet them in this big room downstairs and I'd have everybody do their homework a little bit. I'd give them a snack, you know, Kool-Aid and cookies and everything. And then once we'd done that for a little while, we'd go out to the park that was right near the church and the kids would play kickball and they'd run around and have a good old time. Well, this one particular day, uh, Krista and I were out there together that day and we were watching the kids. Um, again, these were kindergartners all the way through fifth grade. And we're out there watching the kids play, and uh, there was a group of kids playing kickball, and I remember seeing this one little boy named Sam, who was about five, and I was watching him play kickball, and I saw him run off the field, boop, 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 over to the bathroom, and he went into the bathroom, shut the door, and I, you know, didn't really think anything of it, 30 seconds went by, a minute went by, a couple minutes went by, all of a sudden, at the top of his lungs, I heard, Mr. Pierce, come wipe, and I sat there for a second, and I thought for a second, I was like, could have sworn that what I heard him say was Mr. Pierce come wipe, but surely that's not what he said. And I turned to Krista and looked, and she was like, mm-hmm, I think so. Anyway, <laughs> and he did say Mr. Pierce. Anyway, and so I, as I was sort of sort of wrestling internally, because again, I'm you know like 23 at the time. I've never done anything like this. And, and so the longer I wait, the more he starts yelling at the top of his lungs, Mr. Pierce, come wipe. And I just was like, what? I was looking at Krista, and I was wavering. I don't know what to do. And Krista was like, I got it. I'll do it. She went over to the bathroom, went in, opened the door, shut it, did whatever she did. And then little Sam came running out of the bathroom, back to the kickball game, oblivious to the fact that he'd just been yelling, Mr. Pierce, come wipe, in front of all of his friends in the middle of a public park, right? I was like, what in the world? Anyway, two weeks later, Krista's got the flu or the bu- something. I don't, know what, I don't remember what it was, but she wasn't with me that day. And I remember, you know, doing the snack, being in the big room downstairs, taking the kids outside to play, kickball games going on, and I'm standing there, and all of a sudden I see Sam go, boop, 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 
and run over to the bathroom. And I thought, if he's not out in 30 seconds, I'm probably going to get fired. Like, it's just going to happen that way. Sure enough, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, all this time goes by. And at then, sure enough, out loud, top of his lungs, Mr. Pierce, come wipe. And I was like, I cannot believe what am I going to do? And, uh, and so I thought, well, maybe if I ignore him, he'll just give up. And he's, that just made it worse. He just kept yelling louder, Mr. Pierce, come wiping. And all of his friends are playing kickball. There are people everywhere. And I'm thinking, you know, what am I going to do? Krista's not there. And so finally, I was like, i got to do something. And so I, you know, sort of painfully jogged over to the bathroom door. And I, and I you know, kind of cracked the door a little bit and looked in there like this. And, uh, and I, was like, I was like, Sam, you know, buddy, what do you, you know, how is it that you don't know how to, you know, take care of yourself like this? And he's like, I just, I don't know, anyway. And I, and, he, and I said, all right, well, I said, what does your, you know, mom or dad tell you to do if, you know, if you're out in public and this happens? And he said, well, he said, my mommy told me just to stuff my pants with toilet paper if, I've ever, if I'm ever out in public by myself and I can't do it. And so I was like, great idea, let's do that. <laughs> and so we're both rolling toilet paper off the thing and I'm handing it to him and he's stuffing it down his little pants or whatever. By the way, I do realize this makes me look evil. I got that, by the way, and I'm missing that. And so, you know, we're doing this thing out there or whatever. And again, you know, 20 seconds later, he looks like a snowman. I mean, he's poofy, and he's making an odd rustling noise. And he runs out onto the kickball field, oblivious to the fact that he's just been yelling, Mr. Pierce, come wipe, right? And uh, what made it worse is that I was like, I'm totally going to get fired. And about 10 minutes later, his mom drove up in an SUV, came out there, and as soon as he ran up to her, gave her a big hug, she looked at me and she was like, don't worry, it happens all the time. I was like, okay, good. Anyway, no trouble. She thought it was funny. Anyway, so point is, here's this little guy, recognizes his need, recognizes he's unclean, but more importantly, he's more than willing to be made clean. He's desperate to be made clean. In fact, so much so that he's yelling, Mr. Pierce, come wipe, publicly, at a park, in the middle of a kickball game, in front of all these people, in front of his friends, he's desperate to be made clean. Here's the point. The point is, is it's not enough just for us to know that we're unclean. It's not enough just for us to recognize that we're sinful, that we're broken, that we've rebelled against God, that we've taken a good thing and made it an ultimate thing, that our loves are disordered. It's not enough just to realize that. We need to be desperate to be made clean, right? I mean, think for a second about all those things that you love and you cling to, right? The gossip, maybe, you know, gossip is just, again, talk about a, a, you know, an itch that needs to be scratched sometimes. It feels so good to, to gossip, right? Or, or think about, you know, whatever it is digitally that might be a piece of your brokenness or a piece of your sin. And, and you hide it away so that nobody else can see it, but you don't want to give it up, right? Or, or worse yet, it may be a sin like pride that you're completely blind to. And you need to be willing, you need to be brave and courageous enough to look at yourself and to say, I'm desperate to be made clean, right? One of the illustrations that a friend of mine uses when he talks about the idea of this desire to be made clean is he basically says we need to to put ourselves up on the autopsy table with Jesus and then invite Jesus to come and show us all of our brokenness and all of our sin, right? All of our rebellion. In fact, I've had any number of friends, unfortunately, by this point in time who have had cancer and they have these things called PET scans. And the PET scan, they stick you in a tube and uh, basically they take a picture of you internally and anywhere that there's cancer, it'll sort of glow. And, uh, and for people that have had cancer for a while, what you see when you get your picture of the PET scan is, uh, is that you see all of these glowing spots. There's all of this brokenness within you. Part of what Jesus is doing with the disciples, I think part of what he's doing with us, is he's saying it's not enough just to be made clean. You need to be desperate to be made clean. 
right? It's not enough just to recognize it. You need to be desperate. You need to be willing to be made clean. How does that happen? One, you need to go to Jesus and you need to say, I'll climb up on the autopsy table. I want you to show me where I'm broken. I want you to show me where I'm sinful. Part of it means putting yourself in relationship with other people and being courageous enough to say, hey, I want to have a relationship with you where you tell me what you see in me, right? Where you tell me where you see brokenness in me. Your temptation, if somebody comes to you and asks you to do that, is to go, oh, no, you're great. You're awesome, right? But the truth is, that's not loving and that's not friendship at all. You need to be willing to love that person enough to tell them where they are broken, and we need to be brave enough to be willing to be made clean. So the first two points, right? We need to recognize we're unclean. We need to be willing to be made clean, desperate to be made clean. I think the third thing we see in this passage is maybe where the good news begins, and the good news is this, that we must recognize that God is willing to make us clean. We must recognize that God is willing to make us clean. Again, while Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Now, again, this guy has had leprosy. He's covered. He's had it for a long time. He's been living on the outskirts, you know, the outside of town, right? He hasn't had normal contact or regular contact with any normal, clean, healthy people in a long time. Not his parents, right? Maybe not his children if he had children, not friends, not family. And so he's been living in sort of this, um, this isolation, ostracized from all these normal people, right? Who knows how long it's been since someone hugged him or kissed him or held his hand, right? Here's Jesus, the God-man, right? The Lord of the universe, right? And it's not just like anybody comes and touches him, but Jesus comes and he lays his hand on this man. He touches him and he says, I am willing, right? I am willing. The reason it's important for all of us to hear this today is we need to see Jesus as a God who's willing to reach out his hand and to touch us and say, I am willing to make you clean. I'm willing to touch you, right? It's the whole reason I came. I came to get dirty. I came to take your brokenness and your sin and your uncleanliness. I came to take it all upon me. I'm more than willing to reach out and to touch you. This is the good news. I told somebody not too long ago that um, when I preach the gospel, part of what I want, I wish sometimes I was like seven feet tall. And this is like massive man, clearly I'm not. Um, but part of the reason I wish I was that big is so I could hug people and I could proclaim the gospel to them that, that Jesus loves you, right? That he's willing to reach out his hand and to touch you, right? So another story of when I was younger, when I was the director of admissions at Covenant College, Krista was playing soccer and taking classes full-time. Sam, at the time, my 16-year-old now, um, was three months old when we first moved there. And, you know, I'd never babysat really before. I don't think I'd ever changed a diaper before. And so every now and then, Krista would, you know, go away for the day on a soccer trip or be in class, and I'd get to watch Sam, which, by the way, is a total privilege. And for the dads in the room or dads to be in the room, totally recommend getting, you know, you having the opportunity to spend huge amounts of time with your babies. And so I would have Sam, and, but again, I hadn't, you know, ever babysat really before or taken care of kids before, and so it was a learning curve for me. One of the things I learned pretty early on is that a diaper can last about 12 hours. Okay. That was, an important, that was an important thing to pick up. And so it can last 12 hours. It just ends up looking like a wet bag of cement around your child's waist, okay? But it's also great for, like, quad development and calf development. And so, like, 
again, I'd be sitting there whatever with Sam, and, you know, hour eight, I hadn't changed the diaper, and who is loaded with who knows what, is dragging around on the floor, he can barely walk or whatever. And then finally, I'm like, okay, I'll change, you know, so I'd throw him up there and, you know, change him, take him, you know, clean him off or whatever. When my mom would come and uh, sort of every now and then come stay with me to help sort of take out, take Sam, take care of Sam, it was funny because, like, in, you know, she would hear a sound, what, what, what was that? And immediately she'd take Sam and she'd throw him up on, you know, the diaper changing table and she would, you know, take the diaper off and she would clean him and powder him and put the little diaper back on and, like, you know, 20 minutes later, she'd have him back up there again, changing the diaper and cleaning them and everything. And then, you know, an hour later, she'd have him in the bathtub and she'd be cleaning them and doing all this stuff. I mean, she, what I sort of avoided in my youth, man, she loved. I mean, she just absolutely loved to take care of him. She loved to make sure that he was clean. She was more than willing to do all of that. She just absolutely loved it. And uh, here's the point. The point is this, is that we are all created in God's image, Right? And so what that means is that God is a loving God. We're loving people, right? God believes in righteousness and goodness and evil. We believe in righteousness, goodness, and evil, all of those things. But we're facsimiles of the real thing, right? God is the real thing. The love that we have, it's not perfect, right? It's, it's, it's a facsimile. It's a copy, like off of a copy machine. It's pretty good, but it's not as good as his. And so the love that my mom had for Sam, the love that my mom surely had for me, paled in comparison to the love that God has for us. Does that make sense? The willingness that my mom had to clean my son up pales in comparison to the willingness that God has to make us clean. Again, this is good news because not only um, is it important that you recognize your sinfulness, that you're willing to be made clean, but what's really important is that we serve a God who is willing to make us clean, right? It's what he came to do right? Your sin is not an obstacle to his grace in your life. His sin, your sin is the very reason for his grace in your life. He is willing to make you clean, whatever it is. You know, whatever it is, you can close your eyes and think about it right now. The sin beneath the sin, the external sin, whatever it is, the reason that Jesus came is because he was willing to make you clean. Now, if that's where the sermon ended today, it'd be fine, it'd be good. But the good news is there's one more point. And the final point is this, is not only is Jesus willing to make us clean, but he's able. Listen again to these verses. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus was willing to make him clean, but more importantly, he was able to make him clean. So the question for us this morning is, do we believe that Jesus is not only willing to make us clean, but do we believe that he is able to? to make us clean. C.S. Lewis, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, addresses um, this very topic of being made clean. In the story, there is um, a young boy named Eustace who is a kind of a jerk and a punk, and, and nobody likes him, kind of for good reason, like he's not a very nice kid. And there's a, a part in the, the story where he undergoes this magical transformation, and he becomes a dragon. And, uh, and there's a sense in which his sort of outward dragonness it's a manifestation of his inward dragonness, if that makes sense. And so he, you know, is, um, he's brutal. He eats animals. He does all these things. But more than anything, he reaches a point where finally he gets tired of his dragonness. He gets tri- tired of his, his ugliness, right? And there comes a point where he's depressed and he's broken. He's sad because for the longest time he's been trapped in this dragon body and he just wants to be like everybody else. He wants to be made clean. And there's one night 
he's flying over the beach, and he sees um, a valley with a pool in it that he'd never seen before. And he goes down and flies to where this pool is, and he begins to go down to this pool. And as he lands by the pool, he looks over, and he sees... He sees this great lion. And he says in the story, he says, you know, do you think I'm a dragon? <laughs> I don't need to be worried about a lion, right? What am I have to fear? And he said that as soon as the dragon spoke to me, though, I mean, the lion spoke to me, I realized that it wasn't just any lion, but it was Aslan, who, of course, is the Jesus figure in C.S. Lewis's stories. <clears throat> and he said he, that Aslan asked me, Are you, do you want to be made clean, right? And Eustace said, more than anything, I want to be made clean. And Aslan said, well, you have to bathe. And so he, Aslan said, climb down into the pool, and then after you get out of the pool, you'll be made clean. And so Eustace climbs down into the pool, and he bathes, and he says, it feels so good. But he comes out, and he looks down, and he sees the knobby dragon skin, and he hasn't been transformed. And so Aslan says, well, you can't be made clean on your own. I have to do it for you. I have to wash you. And so here's where C.S. Lewis jumps into the story. Aslan says this. He says, you'll have to let me undress you. So desperate was Eustace, even his fear of Aslan's claws was not enough to stop him from laying down flat on his back. Laying anxious on the ground, here's what Eustace felt. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pull, pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other times, only they hadn't hurt. He had tried to remove his skin himself, but it hadn't worked. And then there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much because I was still tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became purply delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. So where do we go with all of this? Where do we go with all of this? Jesus' first lesson is you need to recognize that you're unclean. In fact, you're more unclean than you realize. Like if I had the ability to tell you and was articulate enough to tell you, or if I could see into your heart, I would show you exactly where you're broken, exactly where you're sinful. I'd, I'd show you all of those spots, right? Because you need to see them. Right? Jesus needs you to recognize your uncleanliness, uncleanliness. But it's not enough just to see that. You need to be willing. You need to be desperate to be made clean. You need to be willing to stand before God today, tonight, sometime when you can find yourself alone with him and say, God, please show me my brokenness. And you need to be desperate to fall down before him and ask him to make you clean. But more than anything, you need to recognize that Jesus is more than willing and more than able to make you clean. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this picture of our 
brokenness, of our sinfulness. Um, Father, I pray that um, you would give us your Holy Spirit and that through him we might actually be able to see uh, the sin that lurks down deep inside of our hearts. Father, I pray that through the power of your Spirit that you would even give us the ability to desire to be free, to be cleansed. Father, I pray that your Spirit would give us um, the ability to believe that you are willing to make us clean, and not only that you're willing, but that you're able. Father, we trust in you. We trust in your Son, Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.